We have Tom Quiggan on the line. Tom is host of the Quiggan Report. He's a court-recognized expert in areas like uh, terrorism, and uh, he also has a keen interest and expertise in what was going on in the Wuhan lab just prior and ahead of the uh, pandemic. Some suspicious activities there in terms of who was involved and what was going on. We're still piecing together exactly what happened, but uh, evidence is piling up that uh, this was not something that simply originated from bats or that was uh, spread uh, in a wet market. Anyway, Tom is also uh, a writer, and he's written a, a fantastic thriller exposing the risks of the Great Reset. It's called The New Order of Fear, and uh, it's available on Amazon.com. Tom, welcome to the show. Good morning, and uh, thanks for inviting me back again, Mark. Always fun to be here. Let's talk a little bit about this latest poll, which you were tweeting about, a CTV poll. And uh, the question was, do you support restrictions on the unvaccinated? Well, yes. Uh, the yes side had uh, about 14,000, uh, which, which only represented 17%. 17%. The no side, well, 83%. Uh, more than six, almost 68,000 people out of uh, the number polled, over 81,000 polled in total. And uh, you would think that it might have been a bit more balanced given what the government of Ontario was telling us, saying, you oh, people really want this thing. They really want a vaccine certificate. Well, we've got one in Ontario now, but uh, apparently, at least if you believe this poll, Tom, uh, the vast majority of people don't want any restrictions on the unvaccinated. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a CTV poll. It's on their website. And of course, it's a voluntary thing. So the accuracy of thing is always questionable. But it's interesting, just the sheer overwhelming numbers that come out of this that show that, you know, maybe 17% of people want greater restrictions on the unvaccinated. And, you know, something like 83% of people say they don't. Now, you brought up the statement that earlier we had been told that, you know, people really want uh, these vaccine passports and they want, you know, action taken against the unvaccinated. I, I was quite surprised by the fact that government said that that was a majority opinion. So I went back and did what I always do is look at the poll and say, well, what was the question they actually asked? And a couple of the polls where they got high numbers asked questions like, well, would you prefer another lockdown or would you prefer a vaccine passport system? Yeah. And it was a binary sort of thing. It was a one or another. Well, I mean, you know, in that case, I would have said, you know, if there was a gun put to my head, I would say both of them are stupid ideas. Yeah. But nonetheless, if I had to choose a complete lockdown or a vaccine passport, I guess I'd go with vaccine passport. So that was the information we were given that, you know, well, most people prefer the vaccine passport, but they weren't told that the alternative was a complete lockdown again. So I wouldn't, you know, it gets into this question of, what is propaganda? What is misinformation? What is disinformation? And of course, the government would argue, oh, no, we didn't say anything wrong. We just reported the poll. But it's highly misleading to tell people that most people prefer a vaccine passport when, in fact, that was being put up against the option of a complete lockdown again. So misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, fake news, I don't know what you want to call it, but it's in there somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a push poll, essentially, designed to get a result that allows you to spin a story, and we see that all the time in the media. I mean, uh, I don't often credit CTV these days, but if they actually ask the question straight ahead, then it tells me that uh, they were at least looking for some kind of 
honest answer, unless, of course, they didn't expect the answer they got, <laughs> which is which is possible. Maybe they were taken uh, taken off guard. But do you think that the government of yeah. Ontario will pay attention to anything like that? Because they've convinced themselves and tried to convince the rest of us that there's this overwhelming support for vaccine passports, that the business community wants it. I don't believe it. And in fact, I fully expect a lot of businesses not even to comply with this thing. Uh, I think they're going to get uh, a hard time getting people to do uh, to follow it strictly. And we're seeing pushback right around the world. I mean, we've seen the rallies or the protests in places like France, in the U.K., uh, in Australia, which seemed to be asleep at the switch the longest time, allowing the government to ram through all sorts of draconian, dictatorial measures. Now, all of a sudden, the Aussies are saying, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? They suddenly woke up, and uh, we're seeing all sorts of pushback. Are we headed in that direction here, do you think, in Canada, Tom? Yeah, it's unfortunately, I mean, if you take the view from 100,000 feet and, uh, you know, forget the, you know, the exact issue of the passport at the moment and look at the lockdowns and everything else, governments are increasingly overreaching uh, and they are awarding themselves draconian new powers. Um, I've had just informal conversations with a couple of business owners in the uh, restaurant and small retail uh, sector, and they're beside themselves. Uh, you know, the sector is already getting hammered. They've already had a really bad year and a half. And now they're being told by the province of Ontario that you have to take on a law enforcement uh, and security role in determining who should and should not gain access to your business based on the dictates of a government uh, which never had a, no, no laws been passed in the legislature, no campaign was run or anything like that. But they're being told they have to become enforcement officials. So, you know, here you have a, you know, an 18 or 19 year old kid working at a restaurant, uh, working as the host or hostess or whatever, and all of a sudden they're being told they have to take an enforcement role. And they're saying, you know, we're not law enforcement officials. We're not qualified to tell people. Um, we're not here to fight with our customers. Uh, nor are we health officials uh, trained in any certain way. And they also point out like the sheer bizarreness of it is that you and I can't go in a restaurant unless we can produce paperwork to show we've been double vaccinated. But yet the staff who are working in the restaurant don't have to be vaccinated. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's sort of a reasonable question. If somebody walks up to you and says, are you double vaccinated for COVID? You could turn around and say, I don't know, if you have hepatitis. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, the sheer bizarreness of it is unreal. What also is missing, not just on the vaccine passport program, but on the entire lockdown and enforcement arm of this has been a cost-benefit analysis. So we know that certain things in society cost us. Airplane crashes are horrendously expensive and they result in large loss of life. But yet multiple insurance companies, multiple governments and people have done a cost-benefit analysis and they say, yeah, flying entails a certain amount of risk, but we're going to pay the price and we're going to move ahead anyway. Uh, we know that other drugs have been tested, and we know there's failures in drug testing. We know it kills people, but overall we say, look, it's for the general betterment of society we do this. What is lacking from any provincial, state, or national-level organization in North America that I've been able to see, and I think the same goes for Europe, is I haven't seen a cost-benefit analysis come out of Premier Ford or Prime Minister Trudeau or whoever saying that the lockdown cost us, i.e. we lost business, we lost money, we have an increase in childhood obesity, we have an increase in suicide, we have an increase in domestic violence, um, we have an increase in veteran suicide due to PTSD. 
But overall, the benefits have been ABC, so therefore the benefits outweigh the cost. And I haven't seen any of that occurring, which tells me that, A, I don't think the government's even trying to do it. And if they have tried to do it, they realize that they don't have any ground to stand on. So I think if the province of Ontario and the government of Canada as a whole, and same goes for our American allies to the south, if governments want to keep pushing these kinds of highly restrictive measures, they're going to have to be able to demonstrate there's an actual benefit. Uh, so, you know, here we are in Canada with these highly restrictive measures, and they're telling us, oh, my God, the fourth wave is coming. We need to do even more restrictive. But yet there's the state of Denmark, the country of Denmark, has dumped all of its restrictions uh, about two weeks ago, and they're reporting a steady decline in cases. So the, the Danish government did uh, an, an assessment and just said, look, the, the cost of this thing are outweighing the benefits, and we're dumping the entire restriction program, and we're just opening up the society. And several other countries are doing the same thing. So I think, you know, citizens need to start going back to government and saying, what are the costs? What are the benefits? Let's have a discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that there are costs involved that the government is not necessarily outlining in any specific way suggests that they have some kind of other agenda here. In other words, uh, how many people have died as a result of the lockdowns? How many, how many people have been... This, uh, you know, lost uh, jobs. How many people have gone bankrupt? How many people are teetering on the brink? How many people have resorted to drug and alcohol abuse? And um, you know, it's on and on and on. And so, all the negative impacts of the measures aimed at supposedly protecting our health are destroying health in many other ways. And yet, this is something that seems to have been swept under the rug or not discussed, as if it's not really happening. And I just don't think that the government wants to talk about that. And when they don't want to talk about something, Tom, I tend to get suspicious. When they start saying, you know, focus on lockdowns and vaccinations and, you know, ignore everything else because it's all about the science. Well, that tells me that it's not all about the science, that they have some kind of political agenda that uh, favors focusing on one, uh, you know, line of facts versus, you know, another. And so that's, that's what I start wondering Nobody wants to go down the realm of uh, the, the direction of talking about, you know, conspiracy theories or anything like that. But it doesn't hurt to be a little bit uh, suspicious about what government has in mind when they don't look at the broad impacts of what they're doing. All, it's just like they have to get these blinkers on and say, well, we got to listen to the, the experts, you know, this group of uh, infallible bureaucrats, medical bureaucrats, healthcare bureaucrats that are going to tell us what to do and we're going to listen to them. Well, why should we? Why do we have uh, politicians? Why do we elect anybody to this to lead this country if you're just going to take whatever the bureaucrats say is gospel without looking at some kind of... Yeah, I mean, I, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, there's a couple of... Ma- I'm just going to say there's a couple of major questions pop out of what you're saying. Premier Doug Ford is a perfect example uh, he has abdicated any responsibility uh, for this vaccine passport thing and for the lockdown program, saying, well, you know, I'm just following the advice of the senior bureaucrats. And, and the bureaucrats he's following, of course, are health bureaucrats. And, of course, everybody knows doctors are against everything. <laughs> if we left doctors in charge of our society, you couldn't drink. Like you couldn't lawyers. Smoke, you, you know, yeah, like lawyers. Yeah, Tom, you wouldn't be allowed to eat barbecued steak. Uh, <laughs> exactly. You couldn't drive in a car. You exactly. couldn't fly in a plane. Yeah. Um, so that first is the abdication uh, the other thing, and this, this just came out again yesterday, once again, is we have been repeatedly lied to 
by the most senior health bureaucrats, guys like Dr. Fauci or Peter Dozek or those kinds of people at the National Institute of Health in the United States. So yesterday it comes out, and this is published by the, the paper The Telegraph in the uh, United Kingdom, which is regarded as a reasonably reliable outfit. It comes out that about 18 months before the pandemic first surfaced, China submitted a proposed uh, research program to release, and I'll just read this exactly, enhanced airborne coronaviruses into the wild in an effort to inoculate them against diseases that could have otherwise jumped the humans, unquote. Now, it gets even more interesting when they said, quote, they also plan to create chimeric viruses genetically enhanced to infect humans more easily. So what have we got here? (laughs) In other words, gain of function. Yeah, so... Yeah, so what we've got is we have a proposal put forward to the National Institute of Health in the United States coming through China, and what they're looking for is money to test enhanced viruses, which they've monkeyed with, pardon the expression, um, to make them genetically more capable of infecting humans, and they want to release this into the air through nanoparticles. So they wanted to spray this stuff on a bunch of bats in the wild and see what the effect would be, and then they could test and follow up, whatever. Here's the interesting thing. There's an outfit in the United States called DARPA. It is the Defense Analysis Research Institute in the United States, and it does all the super high-end, super high-tech, super secret weapons research for the United States. It's a multi-multi-billion dollar organization that is typically run off the books. It's sort of a black budget organization. DARPA, as part of the review process, because this sort of thing is, you know, talking about the weaponization of a virus, refused the contract, said it shouldn't be done. And then they said, quote, it is clear that the proposed project led by Dr. Peter Dazak could put local communities at risk while warning that Azek hadn't fully considered the dangers of involved enhancing the virus by a gain of research or by releasing the vaccine into the air. So here we have DARPA, which is a super powerful American defense research outfit, which does the craziest research. They do all the you know, super high-tech, super futuristic kind of weapons research. And even they're looking at this and going, this is crazy stuff. You can't go around spraying enhanced viruses Um, into the atmosphere in the hope of learning something. It's just too dangerous. So I think um, as someone who is a court-qualified expert on terrorism, but someone who has also testified in court, and my expertise has been recognized by the court, in looking at the role of intelligence as evidence, if I was asked to testify in a federal court tomorrow and talk about the coronavirus, I think you could say, it is now reasonable to argue several different things. The first is gain-of-function research was occurring, and that was partially financed by Dr. Fauci, Dr. Danzak, and the American taxpayer. That gain-of-function research was directly tied to coronaviruses and to bats, and this is the exact same family of viruses which are causing the current pandemic. It is also clear that they were intending to let this thing loose in nature as part of an overall testing program. And it's also clear that the money for this was coming from the American taxpayer. Uh, 
So boom, I mean, there you go. That's the yeah, kind of stuff you can say, which is completely reasonable. This is not conspiracy right. theory stuff. This is not tin hat stuff. This is stuff where there is hardcore, solid U.S. government evidence to show this was yeah, happening. Tom Quiggin on the line. And Tom uh, has a full head of steam here in talking about uh, some of the latest revelations, scientific revelations, published in places like The Telegraph in the U.K., on what took place leading up to the pandemic. This story, 18 months before the pandemic, scientists in Wuhan, China, submitted a proposal to release enhanced airborne coronaviruses into the wild. That's intentionally. This wasn't an accident. This was released. At least it was talked about in an effort to inoculate them against diseases that could have otherwise jumped to humans. So here we are talking about uh, research paid for by taxpayers um, that, again, supports the idea that there was no, uh, that this did not originate in nature due to bats spreading it to humans, that, in fact, this began in the lab or at least played a role in that lab in, in Wuhan, China. And, of course, to what role that Winnipeg lab played, I don't know, Tom. I maybe you've looked at that. But, of course, the ongoing controversy about what took place in that Level 4 lab in Winnipeg, subject and focus of an RCMP raid, um, also two researchers, two scientists, China-based scientists that had links, at least one of them did, we now know, two uh, top officials, military officials in China. So it just seems to lend itself to spying at that Winnipeg lab. Now, to what degree did that have anything to do with the pandemic? All these pieces of the puzzle have yet to be put together in any kind of cohesive way. Tom, what do you make of all this? Yeah, it, it's a fascinating question. And the Winnipeg lab, uh, as we've discussed in the past, I mean, you would think all the bad stuff is already known about the Winnipeg lab. Uh, it, clearly, it was infiltrated. Clearly, two Chinese scientists who have since returned to China uh, were taking information from the lab illegally. They were sending shipments of their physical work, i.e. viruses they've been working on, back to China. And the government of China actually... Uh, patented a number of processes based on their work. So the Canadian taxpayer financed this work so that the government of China could profit from it. Um, and these two folks were barred from entering the lab uh, by the RCMP, who said it's a national security violation. And you would kind of think, okay, that's all the bad stuff. We already know that bad things happen. But the government of Canada is blocking even further information. And it is a reasonable question to ask is, were these two Chinese scientists involved in coronavirus research directly related to the current pandemic. And one is left saying it's a reasonable question to ask and the fact that the government refuses to answer the question and has gone to extraordinary lengths to cover it up suggests that the answer is quite possibly yes. Now, why is this important beyond the obvious? You know, we shouldn't have people stealing uh, bioweapons from us. But it's also important because for researchers who want to work against the coronavirus, who want to protect you from it or cure you from it or create a vaccine, it's important to know, is this thing created in the lab initially and how is it constructed and how is it built, in which case your research will take you down one path, or did this thing make the jump to human beings when some bat bit some Chinese farmer in a field somewhere, in which case it's a whole other research approach. So your research will be greatly assisted by knowing whether this was a human creation in a lab or whether it was a creation of mother nature out in a field or a cave somewhere. 
So that's uh, that's kind of a huge issue. Now, where this gets interesting again was immediately after the pandemic began, Dr. Fauci and Dazik, and I think it was 32 other scientists, signed this joint letter that said, this is clearly a product of nature. Anybody who says it comes from a lab is racist and they don't, they're not scientific and they're lying. And only we, the most senior scientists, can be trusted to tell you that, you know, this is a natural event, not a lab-created event. Well, it turns out, of course, that almost all of those scientists had direct ties to Dazic, Fauci, and the funding. And Fauci and Dazic and most of these scientists knew full well that gain-of-function research was going on in China on the coronaviruses paid for by the U.S. taxpayer. Also worth noting that if you or I, supposing we just had a bunch of money, decided we wanted to finance an experiment in a Canadian university to look at gain-of-function research, you and I and anybody else involved in the project would wind up in jail. Same thing goes in the United States. You would be thrown in jail for doing this. Because essentially what you're doing is you're trying to create a biological weapon uh, which would have, in some cases, you know, the rough moral equivalency to uh, chemical weapons or nuclear weapons. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> so it looks like the U.S. was continuing, or at least Dr. Fauci and his allies, were continuing research they knew full-on was illegal in the United States and they could be chucked in jail for it. So instead they're offshoring it to China. Uh, which, interesting enough, of course, a communist dictatorship, which has made it perfectly clear uh, they want to destroy democracy and destroy capitalism. So it raises a whole series of fascinating scientific, social, political, and criminal questions. And answers are actually required here. It's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting winter. And speaking of reaching for and searching for answers, right here in Canada, of course, some people suggest that the reason we had that election that useless election that we just had in Canada was that uh, all these committees examining, investigating what took place at that lab, the request for documents, which uh, the government of Justin Trudeau originally uh, hammer and tong fought against it. In fact, took their own, uh, I think it took their own speaker to court or something in order to prevent that from taking place. But it makes you wonder who knew what when at the highest echelons of the Canadian uh, government, uh, Tom, I, uh, who knew what? Uh, did, did these people know what was going on? Were they uh, informed by CSIS or maybe the the RCMP that, uh, by the way, uh, we suspect this is going on at that lab? Did Justin Trudeau, did the defense minister, did others sit on information? And how long did they sit on information that they might have got intel, intel that they had at their disposal that spying was going on, but in a bid to... Uh, you know, not ruffle any feathers in China, they decided they would just turn a blind eye. I mean, isn't it possible that that is what this government is hiding, Tom? Well, it's certainly clear, absolutely clear, that whatever is being hidden has to be multiple times worse than what we've already learned. And what we've already learned is bad enough. And just, just by way of a, a, you know, general education here, it's worth saying that in Canada, Parliament is supreme. The Parliament is supposed to be the supreme power, uh, and that's built on several hundred years of tradition of Westminster Parliaments, of which, you know, we have one. So if Parliament requests someone to justify, or if Parliament requests documents from government agencies, the will of Parliament has to be respected, and those documents have to be produced, or that individual has to be produced on pain of going to jail if they don't show up. 
Here's what happened. A committee in Parliament requested further documentation on the Winnipeg lab. The Prime Minister's office, which is to say Trudeau, intervened in the process and said Parliament did not have the right to request these documents and it was going to go to federal court and it would be tested there. So the government, which is to say Prime Minister Trudeau, was willing to test several hundred years of parliamentary democracy against his wish to silence the committee so they couldn't do any further research into the problem. Now, once the election was called, the Prime Minister's office dropped the case because there is no more parliament. We don't have a parliament at the moment, so there is no one to request the document. Ergo, the case becomes mute, or becomes moot, sorry, rather. And um, so the case just went away. Now, if parliament starts up again, which it should, and if that committee chooses to request those documents again, then they have the right to, to request them, and it's going to be curious to see what happens. And I think you're correct in a certain sense that one of the things Trudeau wanted to do with this majority government was to further stifle more of the committees. And committees were looking like things into the Wee Charity, they were looking into SNC Lab Lab, they were looking into the Winnipeg Lab. Uh, they're looking into parliaments or Mr. Trudeau's intent to censor the internet so you can't say hurtful things on the internet. Um, I think that was one of the reasons he wanted the majority government was to further centralize control in the prime minister's office and take away more power from parliament itself. And in the midst of all this, of course, you have AUKUS, A-U-K-U-S, this trilateral security pact signed uh, by the Australians, the uh, Americans, and the Brits, um, came out, and lo and behold, Canada was caught off guard. Um, no idea it was going to happen. These two are partners of ours in the, uh, you know, the uh, Five Eyes, and now it appears that this other smaller group has superseded that, and uh, Canada left out in the cold. Uh, you can't help but wonder why. I mean... I do suspect that all these things that we've talked about in Canada's role in what happened with the Winnipeg Lab, all these um, secrets that have yet to come out about Canada's um, you know, ongoing relationship with the Chinese, spying going on here. I can well understand why the Brits and Aussies don't trust Canada at all. I mean, I shouldn't be too surprised, and neither would nobody should be, that the, uh, that the media didn't really play that up because it highlights Justin Trudeau's failure um, to uh, to partner with our allies and um, his determination, seemingly, to forge uh, other kind of ties with the Chinese and further ties with the Chinese, the last people we should be trusting. And so what's your take on AUKUS, and uh, to what degree did Canada get uh, upside the head in terms of how that was handled? Yeah, I think there was, uh, just, just on a personal level, I kind of realized that the whole cooperation with the U.S. government was going rapidly sideways. Um, if you recall Joshua Boyle, who was that young fellow that converted to Islam, he was a Canadian citizen. He married an American woman who was also a convert to Islam. They went off to Afghanistan uh, saying that they were going to help the, you know, the, the Muslim masses or whatever it was they were going to do in Afghanistan. And of course, they got captured by the Haqqani network and they were held prisoner for approximately four to five years, depending on whose version of the story you believe. The U.S. government rescued them in a sort of classic uh, Hollywood TV raid, uh, in which case they sent a bunch of Black Hawk helicopters. They tracked the convoy. They knew we were in the convoy. So they went in, shot up the convoy, grabbed this guy, Joshua Boyle, Canadian citizen, 
grabbed a woman, American citizen, and their kids, also American citizens now, uh, threw them in the helicopter, flew them back to Kandahar Air Base, and rescued them. The interesting part of the story, from our point of view, is that the U.S. government did not tell the Prime Minister's office of the raid and told them nothing about it until the helicopters were literally in the air. And the reason being, it came out, that they were worried the information would leak out. Also worth remembering that the Americans and many people besides that were completely startled by the first defense act of Justin Trudeau when he became prime minister was to pull the Canadian F-18s out of the bombing raids that were going against ISIS. And he gave no reason for it. And then on top of that, a year later, he actually said, returning ISIS fighters to Canada would be a great asset for Canada because they would provide a powerful voice for de-radicalization and all that. Yeah. And then, of course, none of them were ever convicted, charged, whatever. So it, it was it's fairly clear to people that follow this stuff that the Americans are desperately worried about Trudeau. They're worried about his submission uh, to the Islamists. And on an even greater scale, they're worried about Trudeau's uh, policy with Iran and how large amounts of Iranian money is pouring into Canada and how Justin Trudeau's own brother, Sasha, used to be an employee of the Iranian state broadcaster. He did contract work for them. Um, so yeah, within American circles, there's been quiet concern raised. Now, in, in early 2018, much to my shock, um, I had a uh, phone call from a rather senior American official who I didn't know. He asked me about a book I just published on a number of these issues and said he wanted to meet me. And then expressed to me that the U.S. government was desperately concerned about Justin Trudeau and his connections to political Islam. And I was utterly shocked by this because by that point I'm a private citizen, I'm not in the military, I'm not a government agent of any kind or any sort. But yet, nonetheless, I'm being contacted by the American government to discuss these kinds of issues. And the book, which was called Submission, The Danger of Political Islam to Canada with a Warning to America, caught their attention. And they said they're very worried about this from a border security point of view. And what shocked me was not that they're concerned about it. The fact that they were out on the ground actively talking to Canadians about it was, was most unusual and very very irregular. The American government, generally speaking, doesn't do that. So I knew sort of like back in early 2018 that this issue was on their radar and they were desperately concerned about it. Hmm. In the meantime, we have a closed border, pretty much, between you can't drive. That I mean, we're told that that's from the American side, that they, that they are the ones saying no. I sometimes wonder if it's a tacit cooperation with the Trudeau government, which, uh, you know, look, uh, tyrants we know uh, like to turn their countries into little prisons. And so it uh, wouldn't surprise me if there was some level of cooperation there on keeping the border closed that we don't know about, but maybe um, I'm just speculating on that. But, Tom, uh, yeah. I, go ahead. I think it's informative to note that even though the Canadian-American border is going to stay closed for at least another month, the Americans have opened up the same set of travel restrictions and border rules to India. Yeah. Meantime, so you ask yourself, where are we on that scale? And the answer is, we're behind India somewhere. <laughs> Meantime, the southern border is uh, is a disaster area. Tom, thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show. Always a pleasure. Cheers. Thanks very much, Mark. Tom Quiggin, joining us, and uh, 
Anyway, it's, uh, Tom, uh, what are you working on right now, by the way, uh, writing-wise? Something we should know about? Uh, well, I'm working on the uh, the second book in the Great Reset trilogy, mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of about half complete. Uh, I'm doing a bunch of research on uh, political Islam in Canada and how they're infiltrating political parties and the government. Uh, yeah, and that's sort of taking up uh, a good chunk of my time. Right. Uh, but also, at the same time, following uh, what one might call issues of the Great Reset or whatever, to say that our governments are becoming increasingly totalitarian, and it's no longer, to me, a conspiracy theory they're trying to do this. It's a conspiracy fact that there is a series of governments, including Canada, which are increasingly pushing us towards a, a, a series of governments where totalitarian centralism will be the, will be the applied ideology. Tom is the host of the Quiggin Report.